Well, it's a joy to be with you this morning and have the opportunity to share with you God's Word. I see we have a lot of guests today. Welcome. We're glad you're here with us to worship with us. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open them to the book of Philippians. And if you don't have a Bible, we have some in the back. You can just lift up your hand and we can get one to you. Andrew and Luke will come around and give you a Bible. Russell has asked me to... Uh, continue in this series of walking through the book of Philippians in our series entitled Joy and Suffering. And if, uh, if you have one of the Black Bibles, the page is uh, 980, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, David, can you turn me off on this subject? If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the Philippians is in the latter half of your Bible located in um, letters to the Ephesians and Colossians. And as you open there, I want you to, to keep this uh, passage, not passage, but this, uh, this idea in your mind as we, as we talk this morning, is that our suffering can serve to advance God's kingdom. Our suffering can serve to advance God's kingdom. As we prepare to read God's word, I want to ask that you stand with me out of respect for the reading of his word. Philippians 1, starting in verse 12, reading through verse 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So our suffering can serve to advance God's kingdom. That's the idea today. As many of you know, there is a city in northern Greece called Philippi. And Paul, on his second missionary journey, planted a church there. And it is a church that he came to love very, very much. It is evident from the first 11 verses of this chapter, in which Russell walked us through last week, in case you weren't here. And from that moment, when Paul planted that church in Philippi, we fast forward 12 years later, that's where we find Paul. He's, he's in jail in Rome on trial for his life. And in those intervening years, the, the church of Philippi had supported Paul in his ministry. They supported him financially, and they loved him very much And they, because he was their apostle, and he held them in high esteem. They held him in high esteem. And when they found out he was on trial for his life, they sent off Epaphroditus with gifts to support him. Epaphroditus was one of their own. He was a member of the Philippian church. But when Paul receives Epaphroditus, he also receives bad news from him. He says to Paul that back in the church, their enemies of the cross were threatening the faith of the believers. And they hear that Paul is in prison and on trial for his very life, and they don't know if he's ever going to come back and help them. You see, if the enemies are attacking at home, and Paul dies in Rome, what's going to happen to the gospel? 
something that they might be thinking. So, and so he's, he's writing this letter to the Philippians to address some of these things. And he writes to encourage them and tell them that the gospel of Christ is far too great for it to depend on, on his faith, on Paul's faith for its success. He writes to encourage them and look at what he says in, in verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest of my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. In other words, Paul is saying, don't fret about the gospel. Don't worry about me. What really matters is not whether I get out of jail or even whether if I live. What matters is that Christ goes on being preached. So keep walking straight to Philippians. Not Paul, but Christ must go on being honored. And in that, I rejoice, is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that his, that his imprisonment, which seems to be a setback, actually served to advance the gospel in Rome. Now, I want to give you some background, and, and bear with me for a moment as I go through this, and then you'll see how this all ties together with the text this morning. I want you to think about the, the long chain of events that led to this moment. It all started in Acts chapter 21 when he went to Jerusalem to make an offering in the temple. And rumors began to spread about Paul that he had defiled the temple by bringing a Gentile to it. And that eventually led to a mob scene where Paul was seized and severely beaten. And he likely would have been killed had the authorities not stepped in and arrested Paul. Eventually he was sent away to stand trial as a Roman citizen. And there he was held for two years. Meanwhile, he gave his testimony to Felix, the Roman governor, who listened to Paul but still held him in confinement. And still later, he testified in chains before King Agrippa, and eventually he was put on a boat with other prisoners and sent off to Rome, but the boat never made it. It eventually sank in a violent storm on the Mediterranean Sea. Paul survived, as, long as, as well as others, and they washed up on the shores of Malta, where a serpent came out of a fire and bit Paul in the hand. Finally, he was brought in chains to Rome, where he was kept under house arrest for two years, awaiting trial before Caesar. And meanwhile, his, his opponents spread rumors about him, attempting to destroy his reputation and ruin his ministry. That's the background of Paul's statement in verse 12, what has happened to me? Listen to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. You see, it wasn't always coming up roses. It wasn't always coming up good all the time for Paul. <coughs> so he looks back, and he, he, he sees clearly that everything happened for a divinely ordained purpose. The false rumors, the riot, the beating, the arrest, the four years of confinement, the public misunderstanding, the ruining of his reputation, the slanders, the whispers, the accusations against his name, 
the shipwreck, the snake bite, and his house arrest in Rome, all of it is now clearly seen as part of God's plan to bring him to Rome at precisely this moment, in precisely this situation, so God can have him where God wanted him to be. See, as a Christian, Paul would have had an understanding of the providence of God, or the sovereignty of God. That's the belief that God is in charge of everything that happens to us. The good and the bad, the positive and the negative, and that in some way unknown to us, he orders all things, including, including our own free choices, so that whatever happens to us is for our good and for his glory. Now this doctrine is easier to believe when things are going well. When we have money to pay our bills, a good church to attend, friends who love us and everything is coming up good all the time. Our marriage is positive, family together. It's something else to say you believe in God's providence when your health is bad, when your marriage is failing, your family is torn apart, your career is going nowhere, and your friends have turned against you. That's when you discover what you truly believe. How could Paul look at his situation in such a positive light? After all, being chained to a, to a soldier in a Roman jail is, is normally not a good career Here's the answer. Paul judged everything by kingdom priorities. He had a kingdom mindset. His, his goal was to further God's kingdom. It's as if it didn't matter at all to him that he was in jail. The only thing he cares about is that the gospel be preached and people come to Christ. Since Paul lived solely for the kingdom, he could find something good even in jail in Rome. Surely God must have sent him there for a purpose. And he would find that purpose and he would rejoice in it. He would rejoice in it. You see, Paul was being guarded by members of the Imperial Guard. And these were highly trained soldiers, and they served as a cross between the like the Secret Service and the Army Special Forces. And they were created by Caesar Augustus some 70 years earlier. And the Imperial Guard numbered about 9,000 in Paul's day. And they were paid double the normal wage, and they served for 12 years, after which most of them retired in and around Rome. And over time, they became a very powerful political force, putting forth nominees for the Roman Senate. Now, all of this meant that the Imperial Guard were one of the most important groups in ancient Rome. So how was Paul going to reach them with the gospel? After all, it wouldn't have worked for him to go down the road and run a hall and have a Rome for Christ crusade wasn't going to work. After all, who, who wanted to hear this Jew from Tarsus talk about some man named Jesus? But God wanted to reach those imperial guards. So he took his best man, he had him unjustly arrested, and sent to Rome where he was chained to a member of that imperial guard 24 hours a day. And since they changed guards every six hours, this meant Paul had a new audience four times a day, 28 times a week, and over 2,900 times in two years. That's why Paul could truthfully say that the news about Christ has spread throughout the entire palace guard. No doubt he had personally witnessed the hundreds, if not thousands of them, during his long days in prison. You see, God designed a chain reaction for the spread of the gospel in Rome. See, only God could think of something like this. It says in verse 14, because of my chains, in another translation, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. You see, courage is contagious. And in this case, Paul's courage in chains 
spread to the believers who watched and witnessed to the Roman soldiers. And persecution can be productive. Because even though Paul was in jail on a trumped-up charge, his incarceration produced a, a harvest of bold evangelism across the city of Rome. Now, I've personally experienced something similar to this, not quite to the extent that Paul is in jail writing this letter to the Philippians, but I, I lived in Africa for two years. And I did a number of things there, but, but my, my sole focus was the advancement of God's kingdom in that place. I was able to participate in many different things, church planting, uh, training pastors, I did a lot of evangelism, and I would host a number of teams while I was there. And uh, they would come for a week or two at a time from the States to, to assist in the work that God had going on over there. And so while one of those teams was in the country, we traveled to a, a city in the east. And this was a, a spiritually dark place. It was dominated by Islam, and there was a lot of witchcraft practiced in these places. It was spiritually dark. So one morning while we were there in the city, we gathered to pray before we went out. And our prayer was very specific. We gathered in our, in our hotel room, which, which was not a very nice place. And Just to give you an example, when you pull back the covers on your bed, sometimes roaches scurry. And you, you didn't really want to sleep in that bed. So we gathered to pray in our hotel room, and our, and our prayer is very specific. We said, Lord, give us an opportunity to share with some influential people in this place. Give us an opportunity to share with the, the people of influence in Islam and witchcraft. And so we, we prayed that that morning, and there was four of us, and we all had our own interpreters. So as we left the hotel room that morning, we all went in our separate directions. After about 30 minutes of walking, I stopped to share with the young man. And within minutes, I had a crowd of around 50 people around me. We have a picture. So this is, they, they gather, they huddle around you because they're so interested in what you have to say. So after I got about halfway through my presentation of the, the story of Jesus, a man with an AK-47 came in the middle of that crowd, grabbed me by the arms was taking me with them. Now in that moment, I didn't know if I should hit the man, take his gun, and run off. The thought just crossed my mind. Or if I should just go with them. I ended up, I chose to go with them. That AK-47 being a big deterrent of other actions. Now, after inquiring with my interpreter, I realized that I was, that we were being arrested for preaching on the street. And you can imagine that the emotions that were going through me in that moment. If we had prayed in that in that dirty hotel room, this is what a, a typical African house looked like. And this, this house is actually right next to the jail. They wouldn't let me take a picture of the jail. But. So you can imagine, if, if that's what a typical African house looks like, where we were, and if that's, if we prayed in that dirty hotel room that, that morning, what would that African jail house look like? And this is kind of what was going through my mind as I was on this journey to the jail. Now, I was, I was angry. I was afraid. I was anxious in that moment. And as, as we approached the jailhouse, the fear was now reality. You can see the men in their cells, which look more like shacks, 
with some bars. And the prisoners looked run down and beaten up, and like they hadn't had much to eat or they hadn't bathed very often. I was staring at a very scary reality. I was taken into a room where I waited for a couple of hours, and eventually six men walked in. And as they passed me, they looked angry and upset. They didn't smile at me. And then I realized that they were there to interrogate me, and upon beginning my conversation with them, I realized that they were the head city officials. Remember my prayer that morning. God, give us influential people to talk to. So I realized in that very moment that God had answered that very specific prayer. Not only was I sitting in front of influential people, I was sitting in front of the most influential people in that city. And what was my day of suffering, what I thought was a future of suffering, turned into an opportunity to advance God's kingdom. You see, my fear was now joy, my anger was now happiness, because I knew that I was in God's hand in that moment. And it didn't matter what happened to me from then on. You see, I had a job to do, and that job was to share Christ with these men that were in front of me. And before I left, that's exactly what happened. I hadn't got the opportunity to speak. That's the first thing I started telling them about Jesus. And when it was all over, the men who walked in angry and upset at me walked out, escorting me out of my friend. I don't know if they accepted Jesus that day, but I do know that something changed in them. Because our God is amazing. He does incredible things. If there are some people that he wants to reach, he's going to use whatever means necessary to reach them, even if it means getting arrested and putting his company. Now Paul's chains were a constant reminder that his suffering was very real. It meant the end of his work as an apostle, the end of his work as a church planner, to the end of his work as a preacher. You see, Paul was in a demeaning situation, and his life was to serve God. And for that service, God has him sitting in prison, chained to a Roman guard, waiting to be tried and perhaps executed. It appeared as though Paul's career was over, but he doesn't appear to be discouraged or in despair. He writes a letter to the church in Philippi, and it is a letter of joy. But Paul doesn't whitewash the troubles. He has. He's very honest in this paragraph, if you read on, that God may free him or God may take his life. God may allow him to return to the work as a pastor or God may end it all now. And we see that some are already dancing on his grave. In verse 15 we read, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. And in verse 17, the former preach Christ out of, another translation says, selfish ambition. Not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. How could one preach Christ out of selfish condition? Unfortunately, Paul doesn't give us much to go on here. We don't have all the details. But during Paul's life as today, there is this idea that God would not allow people who live rightly to suffer. And since Paul was suffering, sitting in jail, some concluded that his message must be misguided. That his faith may be flawed. That his life must be displeasing to God because... God has him sitting in prison. Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. 
no matter how you read these verses, they sound a little strange because Paul is speaking about two groups of genuine believers here. One group, one group loves him and, and preaches the gospel from good motives. The other group evidently is jealous of his leadership and took advantage of his imprisonment to defy the body of Christ. But it's important to note here that the, whoever these selfish preachers are, they're not false prophets. If they were, Paul could hardly have rejoiced in their preaching. No, they are true brothers in Christ who nevertheless are using Paul's situation as an open door to advance their own cause. They had the right message, the gospel, but they preached it from wrong motives. Their message was good, their motives were bad, and their methods were perhaps questionable. Now, no doubt it had to have broken Paul's heart, knowing that some of the brothers were using his prison time against him. But in any case, he would rest content in knowing that he was in God's hands, and that he had many friends who did truly love him. In verse 18, it begins with a question. It says, what then? Another translation, it says, but what does it matter? The important thing that is, is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I will rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. So here's Paul's conclusion. He, he has chosen to rejoice in the spite of his critics. Paul's only concern is the gospel of Christ. And as long as people preach Christ, it doesn't matter what they say about him. For Paul, the main thing was the gospel. He refused to be diverted by lesser issues such as how certain people felt about his being in jail. On one level, it was an irritation. On another level, it didn't matter at all to him what they thought about his being in jail. In the end, whether his fellow believers loved or hated him, it didn't matter so long as the gospel was preached. Our suffering can serve to advance God's kingdom. We've seen the example of, of Paul in, in our passage today of how that's true. I've given you an example from my own life. I want to give you another example. There was a man named John G. Patton. John G. Patton was a missionary on the island of Tana, which is a part of the island chain of Vanuatu. Anybody been there? Prior to him going to Vanuatu in 1839, two men named John Williams and James Harris went to this place. And within minutes of them going ashore, they were clubbed to death, they were cooked, they were eaten by cannibals. Now John G. Patton arrived there in 1858, 19 years later. I guess John heard their story and was like, that sounds like a great place i got to go there. But I don't think that was John's motivation. His motivation was that he saw the suffering, the sacrifice of these two men's life, and it stirred in him a passion to go and share the good news about Christ with people that didn't know him, where it didn't exist. You can imagine John would have been criticized by many of the people in his church, and he was criticized by many of the respected elders in his church. And one in particular, Mr. Dixon, said to him, he said, John, you cannot go to this place. You know you're going to be eaten by cannibals. This was John's response. He said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, and there you will be eaten by worms. 
I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I meet by animals or if I meet by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of his risen redeemer. You see, it didn't matter to, to John that there was a life of suffering ahead of him and possibly the giving of his life. It didn't matter to him what the people thought about his wanting to go there. Because he had a job to do. Just like Paul had a job to do. Just to share the gospel with those imperial guards. The result of John Patton's time in going to Vanuatu was that entire people groups came to know Jesus. Entire island chains came to know the love of God. Some of you in here will say, I'm not called to that. Paul was called directly from the Lord. I'm not called to do whatever it takes to advance the gospel of Jesus. I'm not called to suffer if that's what it takes. But I say to you that you are. And Acts says, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. In Matthew it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded, and behold, I will be with you. Saying, Go, you're my witnesses. Go, I'm with you. See, if you are a Christ follower, you're a call. I want to read something to you by a guy named William Booth. Anybody ever heard of William Booth? He's a founder of the Salvation Army. He says this in response to someone saying to him, they are not called. He says, not called? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him go, hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire. Put your ear down to the burdened, agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful well for help. And go stand by the gates of hell and hear the people there entreat you to go to their father's house and to bid their brothers and their sisters and their servants and their masters not to come there. And then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether or not you would join him, heart and soul and body and circumstances in this march to publish the mercy of God to the world. You see, Paul found joy in the midst of his situation. He found joy in the midst of his suffering, and that joy was sharing the gospel of Jesus in a place that only God could have ordained for him to be. Think about that way in which you're struggling. Think about how your suffering can serve to advance the gospel. That difficult relationship at work, that financial stress, how can your suffering serve to advance the good news that Jesus has rescued you from your sin? Now the question is the same for everyone in here, is what will you do with Jesus? If you don't know Jesus, what will you do with him? Will you continue to reject him? Or will you this morning prayerfully say to Jesus, I have sinned, I need to be rescued from this. It says in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he was raised from the dead, you will be saved. What will you do with Jesus this morning? The question is the same for you that do know Jesus. What will you do with Jesus? Will you leave him at home when you get up and carry out your daily life? 
or will you take him with you? Will you make yourself uncomfortable at work to possibly have a spiritual conversation? Will you make yourself uncomfortable around those longtime friends that you've never shared Christ with? Will you make yourself uncomfortable by asking your neighbors to dinner to possibly share the love of God with you? You see, we are called to something great as Christ followers. We are called to something greater than just getting up, going to work, and coming home, going to sleep. Our suffering can serve to advance God's kingdom.